Welcome, viewers and listeners, to the Total Football Analysis EPL Podcast. We are the Thinking Fans Podcast. Each week, we get together with our besties, who are current pro players, real coaches, academics, and stat heads. In the end, we want to provide thoughtful, hot takes about football. Today, I'm joined by analyst This Is How It Works, Harshal Patel from Calcutta. In addition, I'm joined by Daniele Prock, a I Feel the Need for Speed professional striker from North Carolina FC. Finally, I'm joined by Dre Fortune, a I Can See the Future scoring midfielder from North Carolina FC. I'm host Chris Mumford, known as the Professor Bella Chow. During the fourth week of the restart, we are beginning to see teams of the future in the dying numbers of the season. Arsenal is playing the best version of the, itself, while Man U is stealing the youth movement mantle from Chelsea. Leicester and Chelsea are in the hot seats. Liverpool and Man City are reminded of their mortality, and that regression to the mean is as certain as death and taxes. The relegation battle is getting more and more clear as teams run out of games. Meanwhile, the FA Cup has been as dramatic as ever as the team's youngsters show their stuff. Yes, sometimes dream come, dreams come true faster than you think. Well, let's go ahead and start this week with a recap of the Arsenal-Liverpool game, billed to be super high-octane, uh, where the youth movement are taking on the mammoth of the league, Liverpool. In the very end, what we saw was we saw Liverpool with 69% of the possession. They had 24 shots compared to Arsenal's three. In the second half, there was a 10-minute spell where Liverpool had 91% possession. The As well as the expected goals was 2.22 and 1.32 for Arsenal. Salah had many, many opportunities, but the game ended up digressing a bit into almost a playground poacher pickup game where a couple of missteps from some defenders ended up making the difference. Harshal, can you pick it up from there? Yeah, and um, obviously the, the headlines and the focus was on the fact that both of Arsenal's goals came from errors by Van Dijk and Alisson, which I mean, both of them are really rare, you know, so, so to have both of those sort of things happen in the same game is like lightning striking twice, the same, like, lightning striking the same spot twice, literally. But if you look at the tactics, I think um, Arsenal fans will be really happy because you can finally see the sort of identity that uh, Mikel Arteta has been trying to build come through on the pitch. Um, he's been playing with the back three now for, I think, um, this was the seventh game and counting the FA Cup semi-final, I think it will be the eighth game in a row where he's played a back three and... I don't think that it will be his formation, sort of his first choice formation going forward, but it's working for the team right now because it's giving David Luiz the opportunity to be able to um, show his playmaking skills from the back as such, but also have some additional defensive security around him. We've seen Kieran Tierney do really well as the sort of left-sided centre-back because he can play out from the back really well when we saw that in both games and uh, he can obviously defend as well. And what I really liked about Arsenal in this game was the fact that they pressed Liverpool well. But at the same time, in the second half, they were, as you said, you know, the possession stats tell you that Liverpool had, I mean, the vast majority of possession in the second half. But Liverpool, uh, Arsenal were 
absolutely content to let them have the ball. They sat back and literally it was like a 6-2-3 at times. They had a back six and then they made the space extremely compact. Liverpool had to try and get crosses in. But, uh, I mean, they did have chances, but they got lucky as well. Martinez made a couple of good saves. But um, they did really well in terms of sort of congesting the central areas and not allowing Liverpool to progress from there. And on an attacking sense, I thought uh, the pressing was really good. I thought Lacazette was used really intelligently. He was dropping in on Fabinho when Liverpool had the ball, when the Liverpool centre-backs had the ball. So, Liverpool couldn't really progress the ball through that route. So, I think it's coming together really well for uh, Arsenal and for Arteta at this point in time. I will say that these sort of matches remind me that soccer is an unfair game like life, you know, because Liverpool seem to absolutely dominate. There are two slip-ups, and I would say that second goal of which most people lay the blame on Allison, which I do as well, but I, I think that Robertson probably should not have made that throw in back to his keeper on his non-dominant foot of which he had to one time against a super fast striker. And uh, I, I, I appreciate the fact that Robertson has the confidence that he can whip the ball back at his keeper's non-dominant foot, but there are limits, I think. Dre, what's your take on the game? Um, yeah, obviously, I think, I think at the start of the game, uh, well, first I'll say, I think the game went kind of how you'd expect it to go in terms of Liverpool dominating the possession and all that and being on the front foot. and then. So, you know, going off that, I think at the start, once once Mane gets the first goal, really well-worked goal, and, you know, expose Arsenal at the back uh, with some of the mistakes that they've been criticized for, I think. You just kind of expected Liverpool to take off with that and uh, and just, you know, go off with the game, maybe score two or three more. But we saw a, a really resilient Arsenal team kind of, you know, fight back and make sure to claw their way back into the game and, and stay in it. Granted, you know, there were a couple of mistakes, I think, Obviously, the chances still have to be taken, and I think there were two well-taken goals, you know, well-composed finishes in the box um, from Lacazette and, and was it Reese Nelson, I think. So, um, yeah, I mean, it, as an Arsenal supporter, I'm, I'm I'm happy to see that. Obviously, you know, we've spoken over the last week or so about how Liverpool's looked since winning the Premier League. So, um, you know, maybe they weren't as sharp as 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 they're used to being because you know when you look at the shot breakdown, I saw. Out of the 24 shots, nine of them were blocked. So I think that's, you know, another credit to Arsenal and, and how they've been getting after it defensively. And, you you know, really positive signs for the future. Yeah, I will say, as if you're a, a, a striker and your team takes three shots and two of them goes in, uh, that's that's a that's a good day. Even though it sounds like a tough day, that's a good day. Yeah. Uh, so... So let's go ahead and turn our attention to the Leicester-Sheffield Leicester United game. Harshal, can you walk us through that, please? Yeah, sure. So Leicester really needed to win this game to have a shot at Champions League um, qualification because they'd fallen off a little bit since the restart. And they did manage to do that. They picked up a 2-0 win. Uh, but I will say that uh, they did sort of manage Sheffield United really well in the sense that they matched them in terms of the system. They went with back three as well which Brendan Rodgers has been doing for um, a couple of weeks now, a couple of games. And I, it, it has been a bit uh, forced because they've had quite a few injuries at the back, which has led him to sort of use the system. But it's been it's worked in this game because it matched up with Sheffield United really well. We all know that Sheffield United really like to progress the ball down the flanks and, create, and they like to create overloads down the flanks. 
but Leicester matched them when they were trying when they were in their um, defensive third, and they sort of got enough players on the flanks to be able to crowd out Sheffield United and not allow them to create passing triangles. And at the same time, they had enough defenders in the box as well to um, deal with any crosses that came into the box from Sheffield United. So I thought they did really well. They picked up the two goals. Jamie Vardy uh, didn't really didn't score, but I think he had a decent game as well. Uh, and Iose Perez and Demery Gray got the goals for for Leicester. And yeah, they managed to sort of stay in the race for champion for the Champions League, um, which they really needed to. I got you. Well, good. Well, let's go ahead and turn our attention to the other end of the table, which is the West Ham Watford game. This was really important to figure out who gets to escape the magnetic field of the relegation zone. Walk us through that, Harshal. Yeah, and uh, again, <laughs> for everybody who's listening in, another sort of shout out to David Simo, who's a regular, another regular contributor who you would have heard here. He's it's just been unlucky that he's missed both the episodes where he really should have been because uh, West Ham have done a, another sort of. Uh, they pulled the rabbit out of the hat and, and they, there's no way they're going down anymore. But I will say this, we're recording this at on the evening where we've, got, where we've heard that Nigel Pearson has been sacked by Watford. And on the evidence of this game, of the West Ham-Watford game, I can see why. Because the first half, it looked like Watford were not really competing at all. I mean, West Ham were first to every challenge. They, they were a lot more aggressive. They got the three goals as well. But... They, uh, Watford didn't really look like they were in it. Like if you look at the goal, if you look at the third goal, which Declan Rice scored, which was a great goal. I mean, he scored it from outside the box. He hit a shot, like a really good shot. But there was nobody closing him down. And you look at the other goals as well. Their mistakes. The the midfielders are not being picked up when they're making forward runs, uh, and they they just look limp. And I don't understand why that would be the case when they are down at the bottom of the Premier League. So in that sort of, when you look at it that way, I can understand why. Um, the Watford owners and the management have decided to to um, remove Nigel Pearson for the last two games, but at the same time they're playing they're, they're playing Manchester City and Arsenal, so they're in a, they're on a bit of hiding to nothing. I don't know how they can expect. I mean, they'd be lucky, I think, to get a point from those two games. So Watford really are in trouble because if Aston Villa can pick up a point or even pick up one win from the remaining two games, I think Watford will go down. And this game will be a massive reason why. Oh, Shah, sorry. Um, you mentioned yeah. um, Nigel Pearson uh, got sacked today, right? But I, I agree. Uh, Watford weren't ready in that six-pointer game against, um, against West Ham. But what's a new manager going to do? He's going to walk into the locker room and say what? Okay, we're going to have to beat um, Arsenal and the menu. Like, and City. And City, so sorry. He's not going to have time to work on any tactics or any movements on improving any kind of chemistry so i do not see the point of this uh of this sacking do you think do you think it's possible that maybe the players kind of just gave up on the coach towards the end i mean if you harshaw mentioned how you know they kind of look like they've given up uh maybe the players don't have any belief or confidence in the coach anymore and that that change may be able to spark something i don't know obviously you're right i mean i don't think tactically anything will change but but if you're in that trouble position why would you uh, give up? Like the coach that you have should not be really a factor in uh, turning down your motivation in that you are there. You want to play Premier League football again next year. You want to have a Premier League contract again next year. Why, why would you turn against the coach for the last two matches? 
especially knowing that you're playing against two big teams. So you're just adding to the confusion, to the negative vibes, I think. I, I don't think that's the case, to be honest. Like what you said, Dre, I don't think that's the case because, I mean, remember, Pearson came into the came in at Watford, I think, in November last year when they were they had like eight points, I think, at that point from some I forget the number of games, but they were really in the middle of the relegation mix, and he's done really well in in getting them out of it in the sense that they have a fighting chance. If you remember, they beat they were the first they've been the only team to beat uh, not the only team they were the first team to beat Liverpool this season um, with that three 0 win. They've uh, they've had a couple of other standout sort of performances as well, and. They had, I think, a six or eight game unbeaten run back in December, which sort of hauled them above water. So I really don't think it's a case of the players turning against him. I think it's from whatever I've seen on Twitter and on social media, it's, it's come down from the management rather than sort of a thing from the players where it was the display in that game that has sort of forced their hand. Although, again, it's, it's a little um, unbelievable to think that one game or even just one half of football could suddenly make them so annoyed or furious or whatever to sort of completely uh, change the way they're going about things with just two games to go. But that's the sense I've been getting from social media. And obviously, this is just happened a few hours ago in the evening. So we'll probably get to know a bit more as the week goes on. But okay. he's the under-23 manager who's going to take over. So he is a little bit familiar with the players. He's, he was caretaker manager earlier in the season as well. So they do have that thing going for them, whether it's a, someone familiar coming in. But yeah, I mean, City and Arsenal, both teams... Who can? I mean, I, I really don't see Watford even picking up a point from either of those two games, especially with all the turmoil going on. So, yeah. Well, so let's go ahead and turn our attention to the Spurs Leicester match on Sunday, and that really looked like it was going to be a, a complete dominant performance by Leicester. Um, they held the ball most of the match, seventy-one percent, had twenty-four shots on goal compared to the Spurs seven. Uh, of which six were on target for Leicester and only three for the Spurs. Um, but guess what ends up happening? Uh, the Spurs end up winning 3-0 in an absolutely gritty, gritty performance by Harry Kane. And I will say, you know, this is no – the Spurs are no longer – have or they've gotten all the Pochettino stamped out of them. This is a, a complete Marino uh, sort of setup here. Uh, with counterattacks, um, Sun looked very, very lively, amazing. He he is the Duracell bunny. He keeps running and running and running. And what I was really struck by was the contrast, both in terms of playing styles, but also in terms of how Vardy and Kane how they looked on the pitch. Daniele, what do you when you look at these strikers I, I, as your professional striker? What are qualities that you see in each of them, and what are what are some of those qualities you wish to aspire towards? Yeah, for sure, we're talking about two killers, right? In and around the box, Vardy is leading the Premier League in goals with twenty three. Harry Kane just um, scored two today and is up to seventeen. Uh, I like the way uh, they. Um, occupy really the the opponent defensive line in that they're always a threat just seeing them makes their opponent defense very uh, intimidated uh, of Vardy I especially admire the way he is able to take off and just make runs in behind he's powerful he's explosive he never gives gives up and it seems like he always wins all the uh, all the rebounds you know with the defenders it always seems like the ball is always ends up where he is that's because he's just decisive 
and uh, has one target just going straight to goal. Uh, and today, Hurricane just showed how how good he is, how complete of a striker he is. Just look at the at the the second goal showed how he can run as well. The counter attack from the corner kick, he made a great run, finished first touch with his left foot, and the the third goal, Tottenham's third goal, picked up the ball from the from the left side of the box, uh, engaged in a one v one, moved the ball on his right foot, and then just uh, curled it on the far side. So two very complete strikers. Uh, that yeah, you're right, Chris. I try to get inspiration from them. I look at the way they move uh, in the box. I look at the way they they work for their teammates. And uh, and today, uh, even though like you said, Leicester uh, had better stats, Kane won the the one v one duel with uh, with Vardy. Yeah, they scored uh, with a hundred percent of their shots. You know, three three goals on three shots on uh, total. So um, pretty impressive. Hey Dre, let's let's switch our attention towards the uh, FA Cup. Um, let's chat through the the Man City Arsenal game. Yeah, um, just battle of Pep and his little prodigy Arteta there. Um, as you'd expect, Manchester City, I believe, had seventy one percent of the ball or something like that through the entire game. Uh, and again, just another another gritty and resilient performance from Arsenal, similar to the Liverpool game. Uh, this time. I mean, their first goal was was remarkable. They they played out the back brilliantly, and it's shown signs of what you expected Arteta to bring to the table. And uh, they played out the back, and and eventually it ends up on the foot of Aubameyang inside the box. And uh, true credit to him, it's a, a, a great finish. Um, <laughs> love to see him do it again. Uh, it was definitely a, an interesting one outside the booth there, but no, I, I love that. And then they went on and got the second one, and they just defensively they were solid. I mean, City had. I don't remember the exact number. I think it was around 14, 15 shots, something like that. But there was only one on target throughout the entire game. So they, obviously they struggled in front of the goal in terms of um, hitting the target, which made it a lot easier for uh, for Martinez. And that's credit to you know his defenders in front of him. So it was a really good watch for me. I mean, I, I really enjoyed the game. And again, Arsenal just kind of growing into more of who they're going to be. Unfortunately, it's a bit late concerning you know the table and all that. But maybe they can go on to win the FA Cup. Yeah, I was really struck by how uh, Arteta has been able to draw some of the best qualities of Man City in terms of the buildup. I mean, in some ways, and that particularly is that goal, was they, he outpepped Pep uh, from a tactical perspective. Uh, it's really neat to see that. But what I also found really interesting is that super low block, right? I mean, mm -hmm. for much of that second half, uh, you had 11 players practically uh, all inside the 18. Yep. Yeah. And they were really, they were able to possess and then go ahead and, and launch counterattacks. And I, I'm just, I'm very impressed with how Arteta seems to be um, uh, more adaptive uh, in terms of uh, tactically, given the resources that he has, right? If you're Pep and you've got sovereign funds, you can go out and buy the best of everything twice in each position. But uh, Arteta really had to scratch and figure out a way to, basically repurpose Luis, right? And realize that Luis gets burned playing the high line a lot. So in this particular case, let's just move to a low block and we eliminate that error. And so it was, it was just, it was amazing to see, uh, you know, uh, I will, I do have to make a goalkeeper shout out. I think Ederson had a couple of ama amazing saves, but, but all for not. Um, Danielle, any, any thoughts on this game? 
Yeah, all of you guys mentioned how Arsenal performed very well defensively, both against uh, Liverpool and Man City. And like you guys said, that me- if that means sitting in a low block, uh, Arshal mentioned uh, having six guys on, this- on the same line, that's fine. I think that's a sign of maturity. Arsenal have struggled a lot with uh, um, you know, not conceding goals. So these past two games against the best two attacks in the league, I think it could be seen as a positive sign of an improved defensive mentality from Arsenal. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the other the comments I'd like to make is that I think Arsenal's demonstrated and Chelsea that they can be the spoiler, that they can beat anybody. Um, and, and who would have imagined a week ago we would be saying that Arsenal beat Liverpool and Man, Man City? At, at full strength, more or less, right? I mean, that is very, very impressive. Um, but time will tell if they'll have the consistency, right? Can, can they win consistently over 38 games? And I still think they need to address some, some issues in their back line. Um, so that'll be really interesting to see where that takes us. Um, Harshel, I, I know that this uh, next game, the Man U-Chelsea game, is something that uh, you had circled on your calendar. Uh, as as the highlight of the week, uh, help us unpack that. Yeah, I mean, obviously Chelsea picked up the win three one, and uh, before we get into sort of individual player performances and all of that, I think um, tactically, uh, I'd say Solskjaer was a little bit found out in the sense that uh, United have beaten Chelsea earlier this season while playing a back three, and uh, they've done so sort of comprehensively. But the issue in today's game was the fact that, I mean, there was just no penetration with the ball and there were a lot of individual errors as well, which obviously you can't really account for as a manager. But uh, there was no penetration we saw. We kept, we kept seeing Bruno Fernandes drop deep. I mean, there, were, there was a point where he was picking up the ball from uh, Maguire and Lindelof, you know, and he was dropping literally into like deep midfield positions, whereas he's supposed to be the number 10. And... Uh, the, uh, I, I, I think another fact, I mean, which does need to be mentioned is the fact that United have uh, played basically the same team for the last six odd games or so. And uh, Chelsea had an extra 48 hours of rest as well. United played on um, the Thursday and they played on the Monday, whereas Chelsea had just played on the Tuesday. So, uh, Solskjaer tried to rotate the team. He brought Fred in, instead. he put Pogba on the bench uh, and obviously changed the system as well, which had to be changed back again when Eric Bailly went off at halftime and United went back to a back four. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think tactically there were a few things that were out of sync, but it was just individual errors and fatigue which cost United on the day. Daniele, what's what's your take on, on the game? Did you, do you have any opinions? Because I have one one question for you after I hear your take. Yeah, I think Arshal summed it up pretty well. I don't think it was um, too swayed one way or the other. We had that late first half goal by by Giroud. I think it was a great finish by the by the French striker. And then you know you start second half with a big mistake from the goalkeeper. And then if you're a menu player, that can really um, it's really a big hit. Um, and then um, you know when the when the third goal came in, there was little that menu could do, especially because. Uh, they didn't have the time. Uh, they got one back on a PK, but by then there were five minutes left. I'm curious to to hear your question because I feel like you're gonna take the hair sides somehow. You're gonna take the hair sides in this game. 
<laughs> hey, you know, I, I, I'm about finding peace between strikers and keepers. Um, actually, it was it was a question of the striker is that I, I still can't get over how beautifully Giroud played and that the runs he makes are always so intentional. And it's somehow, some way, it's him in the box with three other defenders and somehow he figures out to create a pathway for the server to get the ball to him. And I just, I wonder, I know you guys have different physiques and he is a different look than a, a Kane and a Vardy, but I'm just struck by what a consistent provider of goals he is. He's a very intelligent striker, uh, very underrated. And uh, besides being physically structured, he's also very good with, uh, with his feet, with his left foot especially. He, uh, you, you saw on the first goal how he caressed the ball with the outside of his, of his left boot to just yeah. redirect it into goal. So um, I agree. I agree. Giroud, uh, he may not touch the ball too many times during a game, but when he does, it's usually something effective for, for his team. Right. All right. Let's get to the, uh, the uh, elephant in the room here. Let's you talk about, get there. You know, about, about De Gea. So uh, walk me through, guys. What, tell me why you guys thought that De Gea should be the fall guy for this game. So I'll go first here. Um, <laughs> and then I'd like I mean, to hear what, what Dre has to say, because I know he's got some opinions on this. Because, I mean, as a United fan, obviously, uh, De Gea has been super consistent. He just hit 400 games to the club. I think it was the last game, the, the, the game before this one, where he hit 400 games. And he's been super consistent across all of that time. There were like three or four seasons where he's single-handedly bailed the club out and all of that. But it's been a consistent sort of uh, decline or a, a sort of path of decline that we've seen over the last 18 months or so. He's done, he didn't really do well for Spain at the Euros as well. Uh, sorry, at the World Cup back in 2018. And it's been a sort of downhill slope from there. And today I thought um, for the first goal, uh, Obviously, Giroud does really well. I thought Lindelof made a mistake there as well. He didn't follow Giroud. He let him go in the box, which I think as a defender, that's just like a cardinal sin, right? Like he's literally let his man go free. But at the same time, De Gea got a really strong hand to it and couldn't keep it out. Even though it was a really good, clever finish down to his down low, but De Gea got a hand to it. And I mean, you, there's, no, there's no excusing the second goal. It was hit straight at him and he just sort of flaps a weak left hand at it and it goes in. So, and I've seen, I've seen stuff on social media saying that he should have maybe saved the third goal as well, but that's being too critical. But definitely for the, I think the first, the second goal absolutely was his mistake. And I'd probably put the blame of the first goal halfway at Lindelof and his feet. But yeah, I think it's been a bit of a um, consistent story with him where he's had a lot of errors this season. And it'll be interesting to see if United actually consider making Dean Henderson uh, number one, at least putting them both in sort of like a fair fight and seeing who comes out in preseason. Dre, uh, go ahead and put your chips on the table here. <laughs> yeah, I mean, obviously, Harshad pretty much summed it up. I was going to say, though, I, I did think on the third goal, maybe maybe you can have a bit of a shout for him to uh, to do better on that one. But, I mean, when, when De Gea first came on the scene, I think there were lots of talks about him potentially becoming the best goalkeeper in the world. And, um. It's just, like Harshal said, the, the consistency of the mistakes he's been making, I think, is really what's, uh, what's making it an issue because he's continuously, you know, getting his hand on a ball and it's still going in the goal. And I think that's, I mean, I don't know. That, that, that's so tough to deal with as a player because you, you do as much as you can to defend and make it as easy on the goalkeeper as possible. And then particularly, you know, on Mason Mount's goal, that's, that's directly at him. There's no excuse for that. I mean, 
I think I think most keepers would probably get a hand on that and and, and hold it, you know. And he's he's parried that into his own goal. So I I don't know. I mean, it's it's unfortunate to to see. I mean, you you never want to see somebody struggling like that. But I think he's I think he's let his team down massively. Uh, I didn't even talk about the Giroud one, but that one is yeah, it's a good finish. Uh, you know, all credit to Giroud, but it, it was so there was no there was not much power behind that. And yeah. so yeah, I mean. I, I'd, lo- I'd love to hear how you defend it. Uh, All right. You <laughs> Here's my take. On that first goal, uh-huh. um, you know, it's it's uh, low-driven ball. Giroud is coming across the near post, hits it with his outside foot, outside of his foot, right? More of a – I would say even closer to a flick than it is a shot. And uh, – and – uh, De Gea wasn't in a set position because he was moving across uh, and the ball ends up coming to the right of his of his um, thigh. And we've talked in previous podcasts, De Gea sets his feet wide, which makes him great for being able to do the kick staves on the ground, but it creates a zone of sadness from his thigh to his ankle to his right or left because his legs are spread out so much and he's got one hand to react to that, right? So it's one of those you either accept that that is a shortcoming of that is the way De Gea is. De Gea is not going to go back to a narrow stance and at six foot five, he probably shouldn't, right? So I, I would I would say the first goal, I don't – I think it's unfortunate. I think uh, – it a great keeper would likely have, have made that save, but I can't fault him for that because that was moving so quickly. The second goal, on the other hand, you know, you have a giveaway uh, on your on your pitch. Guy dribbles it down, hits, frankly, a clunker. I mean, it was not a cleanly hit ball at all, right? And he he should have made that save. I think that that part is 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 fair to say. I will say that defenders should not be losing, or midfielders should not be losing the ball in the middle of the pitch, where it's a green light special. Yeah, yeah. Right? Uh, he had an uncontested shot. Um, that being said, keepers should be stopping shots at 21, 22 yards out if they're well hit. If they're miss hit somewhat, it causes trouble, and that's exactly what happened in in that second goal there. As far as declines go, you know, if you if if you do have a look at expected goals, he has underperformed this year. There's no question by about uh, four or five goals. Um, so he's he's clearly had a down season. But I really feel like Day is is has been a victim of his own success. Uh, he had two really absolutely stunning years, and things have kind of come off a bit. He's still he's not even thirty years years old yet. And I would hope that uh, that instead of throwing him under the bus, uh, you you let him be because you know I think Henderson is has a very very bright future ahead of him. But I think playing at Sheffield United versus Man United are going to be apples and orangutans in terms of experiences. Uh, so, but you I know what? With uh, Dean Henderson coming to menu, I'm wondering if uh, Solskjaer is thinking about doing something that Ancelotti did when he was in charge of Real Madrid, which means you play one keeper in the, uh, whether it's Champions yeah. League or Europa League and the other keeper in the league. So you keep that competition between the keepers high 
nobody can really relax. And I think it could be a, a beneficial factor for, for both. Yeah, we'll, we'll see. I mean, I'll tell you, I think uh, if you probably ask Henderson, I, he might want to stay at Sheffield United and, and play all the Premier League games instead of playing FA Cup and, and Europa uh, 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 matches, uh, depending on where they end up. But it's, it's a very challenging issue. Um, you know, I, I did uh, say Henderson, I, I love his, his game a lot. Um, the fact that he wears a baseball cap demonstrates to me that he's a pragmatist in those low light suns. You know, my my goalkeeper son and I have fierce debates about style because uh, he thinks I lose tons of style points in the sun. But hey, it's all about keeping balls out of the net, as far as I'm concerned. Chris, uh, I have a question for you. Yeah. Um, you said, I think when you were talking about the first goal, you said a great goalkeeper maybe saves that. Yeah. So do you think? I'm assuming you're suggesting that you don't put De Gea in that category of, of a great goalkeeper. Do you think that Menu, a club of their stature, should potentially be looking for another goalkeeper? Uh, I I think they need to give De Gea another another year. Okay. I think I think given what, uh, first of all, I'm a pragmatist. Uh, going out and buying another keeper comparable to him, uh, th- those those folks aren't on the market right now. Right. Uh, so. I, I think he has a potential to bounce back. As you guys know, as, as, as players, sometimes the confidence there, sometimes it's not. And, and sometimes one play will change everything and change a trajectory. And I think that's what De Gea needs is that one play. And I'm not sure when it's going to happen. Sorry, just to add one thing. I mean, I don't think United can go out and buy anybody because – the Kepa transfer, like we saw a couple of years ago, he went for what seventy odd million to Chelsea. That's also skewed the market, and you're not going to get anybody for seven, eighty, ninety odd million is the minimum what you're going to have to pay. And the best in the world are probably going to come for more than that. You know, the likes of Oblak at Atletico Madrid, who I think is the best keeper in the world at the moment. Yeah, he's not going to come for anything under than a hundred, hundred twenty million maybe. So you're not going to go out and buy anybody. Dean Henderson. And I don't think United really need to buy someone. They have a really good backup keeper in Sergio Romero, who was on the bench today, having played all of the other FA Cup games. So, I mean, you could on have behalf, just him. Uh, on behalf of the football community, Arshal, I'm gonna have to jump on that remark. You know, <laughs> all black best keeper in the world. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know either. It's a second is quality. Yeah, uh, I don't know. So I mean, it's it's my opinion. Obviously, I think that Oblak <laughs> is the best goalkeeper in the world. But Terstegen, Allison, they're all up there. In my, I think that Oblak is the best keeper. And obviously, uh, we all have different opinions. And if we get into that, I think this podcast will go on for quite a bit. But yeah, uh, yeah I agree. I mean, obviously, I, I, I'm, I I'm happy to, well. to talk to to turn this into a goalkeeper podcast. I will say, <laughs> I agree that Oblak is the best shot stopping keeper out there. Um, but let's. But but I, I guess I want to kind of highlight one point because I want to I want to get one's opinion is is that sometimes you work hard and then if you're at the right time at the right place something really good happens and it changes everything much much like maybe being on the twenty yard line and a goalkeeper not passing the ball and you intercepting the ball and you finishing um, I don't know if that sounds familiar or not, Trey, but that sounds awfully similar to what which ended up happening in the game uh, on on Friday. So that's how soccer is, right? I mean, sometimes you work really hard and you're banging your head against the wall, and then sometimes something happens and you're there, you're ready for the moment. Can you talk a little bit about that? 
I mean, yeah, like it, it's, you know, people always talk about just continuing to work hard and, and be dedicated to your craft and whatnot. And sometimes you're going to, sometimes it's going to bear fruits immediately and sometimes it's going to take a little bit longer and it's going to seem like, you know, nothing's coming from it. But I think once you have that mentality that you're just going to keep doing what you're in control of and just, you know, control what you can control and keep working, eventually all the cards will, uh, will line up and fall into place. Yeah, I mean, I think I've seen that with Giroux this season, and I've I, mm-hmm. and like I said, has been a perfect, oh, yeah. perfect example this week. Oh, yeah. Yep, yep. So let's go ahead and switch our our uh, attention towards uh, our last week of the season, which is an absolute heartbreaker. It's hard to imagine. It's 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 ending. Um, Harshel, uh, walk us through that Man U West Ham game. Yeah. Why does I mean, it matter? Well, Why does it matter? Yeah, obviously, United are out of the FA Cup now and um, the, the priority, I think it already was the, to finish in the top four. That's why we saw a bit of rotation from Solskjaer today. So, I expect, I mean, I'd hope for some sort of reaction in terms of, you know, so in the game against West Ham. And I think West Ham also might just take their foot off the gas a little bit, given that they're more or less confirmed. I mean, they're not going to go down anymore because they've picked up the win and they're uh, they've got, I think, six points on on Aston Villa, so they're not going to go down. And I am hoping to see a bit of uh, energy, a bit more energy, and a bit more sort of uh, uh, a bit more cohesion in the in the team in the display from Manchester United on in that game than what we saw tonight. So, and United do need to win. If they win that, then they go into that final game against Leicester with their destiny in their own hands. They can pick up a win in that game as well, and then they'll be in the Champions League. So. If not for West Ham United, this game is a definite sort of must-win for Manchester United. Yeah, I don't see West Ham having uh, too many chances in this game because Manu are have just bigger motivations. Uh, I don't want to get our friend David angry about it, but um, <laughs> West Ham can really uh, be arithmetically safe even if they lose this game. Um, technically, yes, they have to pick up, I guess, one point. Yeah, but um, that's proven that uh, Bournemouth and Villa win all their games. So yeah, I think this is gonna be. Um, uh, I, I don't want to say an easy one for Menu, but a straightforward one, especially because we're we're gonna see a reaction. I think after today's loss against Chelsea. So, Dre, I'm gonna put you on the spot on that on the Liverpool Chelsea game. Does Liverpool have that much to play for? And is Chelsea? They've got a lot to play for, right? Uh, for that Champions League spot. Yeah, um, I don't think Liverpool really has anything to play for anymore. I think all the record opportunities are done with. Uh, Chelsea, obviously, is, is still fighting for that top four spot, and they want that. So they're, they're definitely going to put everything into it and hope to get three points out of that game. It'll be interesting. I mean, Liverpool's been, for me at least, they've been unpredictable with how they're going to go about the remainder of their games. So um, I'm sure, obviously, Klopp is going to want them to to respond and 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 put a team on the field that'll hopefully get three points for them but i think i think chelsea is probably going to want it a bit more in the day and they might push the envelope there and maybe edge them out by a goal or two so harshell chelsea's got a a, a big week for them because they have to play liverpool and they have to play the wolves tell me what what you're going to look for in the chelsea wolves match so I mean, Wolves can be a tricky customer. I've been really impressed and I've said this on previous episodes as well. I think Nuno's done a fantastic job there ever since Wolves have come up. Um, they've sort of established themselves as a mid-table side pushing for Europa League um, 
and they had a bit of a run at the Champions League places, but they've not been able to make it. But still, they're a really good side, and and they're really um, they're another example of a team who are well drilled. They they play one system, but they play that one system really well. All the players know their roles, and um, on their day, they can beat anybody. And we've seen that already. They've beaten Manchester City twice this season. So uh, I expect. I mean, I don't think it'll be an easy game uh, for Chelsea. Uh, they did have a good game today, but uh, I think. Lampard might need to stick with the the system he played today in terms of a back three against Wolves because um, that does give them a bit more defensive solidity. Uh, and when you have the likes of Adama Traore, Raul Jimenez, Jota, all those guys who will obviously who will be the guys who Chelsea come up against. Um, and then you've got um, uh, Ruben Neves and João Moutinho in midfield who can play through the press, who can sort of service those guys up front. So it'll need to be another sort of tactically. Um, uh, I mean, it'll, they'll need to be tactically coherent. They'll need to have a game plan, and uh, I, it'll be an it'll be an interesting game. I, uh, I think I can see that being a draw or it going either way. To be honest, I think even though Wolves don't really have too much to play for, but uh, I think it'll be it'll still be a tight game. Yeah, I think it's you can easily see given given these two matches why Lampard ended up doing the rotation he did um, today, uh, just because. Yeah. You know, he, he wants Champions League, as, as does Man U. Um, how, how about in terms of the, the Leicester-Man U game? That's going to be very interesting in terms of uh, possession-wise. What's the story behind that? And what will Man U be able to shake off what happened today and, and be ready for a Leicester that's going to be super driven? Yes, yeah, so obviously United have a game in hand on Leicester right now because they play West Ham on the week, during the week and then they will play Leicester on the last day. So if they win that game against West Ham, I think they'll have a bit of breathing room because they level on points with Leicester. They'll go three above them. So if that does happen, I think um, it'll be a lot more relaxed for Ole on that last day. But even if it doesn't, I think it still uh, is fair to say that that game is pretty big for Champions League qualification. Leicester, in my opinion, um, they've struggled. Obviously, we've all seen that they've struggled since the restart. They've had really bad luck with injuries. They're having to play uh, a kid at left back. You know, Luke Thomas played a second game for the club today because Ben Chilwell's injured um, and Christian Fuchs is not there as well. And that's why also they've gone to a back three and we've seen Wes Morgan come back out of the cold. He's barely played and he's sort of playing in centre-back right now because they don't have... Uh, because uh, Soyuncu got sent off in the last game, in the previous game. So uh, we they don't have James Madison either. He's injured. I'm not sure if he'll be back for the for the uh, game next week either. So they've had a lot of injury problems. But at the same time, you spoke about reversion to the mean when we started the podcast, and we've seen that with Leicester that they've sort of come back to where um, the, the numbers or the underlying stats were saying they should have been. And um, I can see United beating them on the last day, especially if United if Man United get the win on against West Ham. I can see them beating them because. Leicester have been struggling. They've picked up a few wins here and there since uh, the restart, but they've not really, uh, they've not been anywhere close to the form that they had uh, prior to the restart. So I think Leicester will miss out and it will be Chelsea and United to take the last two spots for the Champions League. Well, I think that if Menu gets the midweek, uh, mid-week win, then I feel like there's no harm in playing for a, for a tie, right? Um, I'm not saying. Yeah, but I think. Yeah, I think. But I mean, you want to win to be sure, and it's it's the last game of the season. You want to see it out well and all of that. So yeah. Yeah, but we know how Leicester are dangerous in counter attack. So uh, yes, Menu will 
try to control the game, but I can see how I can see Sauce here telling his players to always have coverage, always doubling down on uh, on Leicester wingers and attackers just to make sure that uh, they don't lose their game. That's a priority. Yeah, fair enough. I can I can see that as well. As you said, if United pick up the win in midweek, then it's become it becomes more a case of not losing the game. I mean, you can do with a draw. So yeah, I, that might just happen as well. Yeah, you know the the challenge with Leicester with the injuries as well as uh, the suspension. You know, it's uh, a lot more money on the payroll helps fix those problems, right? I mean, that that's they're really on fumes right now um, as we wind down the season here. Speaking of, of fumes, uh, we've got to talk about that West Ham Aston Villa uh, game. Harshal, what what are you going to look for in that game? Um, again, um, we thought it'd be sort of really big in terms of it'd be like a proper relegation six pointer about three four weeks ago, but West Ham have picked up two really crucial wins since then. And as Danielle said earlier as well, they probably need one point to be secure from a mathematical point of view, but that's dependent on the likes of Watford and uh, Villa and Bournemouth winning the rest of their games, which, I mean, I don't see any of that happening. Especially if you look at Watford's schedule, we already spoke about it. They play Aston, uh, sorry, they play Arsenal and City. And that's, I mean, you really don't see them winning either of those games. So, um, I think Villa will obviously have a lot more to fight for. And uh, I can see it becoming a close game in the sense that uh, if if Villa, I am not going to go into the tactical sort of considerations here, but I, if say Villa score the first goal in that match, I can see it becoming a really really um, exciting game, or I can see it becoming a sort of uh, uh, a game where we might see some more action happening, and we might see Villa may be able to uh, sort of uh, get away from from the bottom three, which they've been in all see almost. Um, majority of the season. So, it depends, I think, on who scores first. If West Ham score first, I can see Villa sort of going to pieces and not being able to come back. But I think if Villa get the first goal, they'll really be uh, able to mount a, a, a good challenge in that match. Good. Well, well, let's go ahead and shift our attention towards what are things we learned this week or what are, what are we going to be pondering next week? Um, Dre, why don't I put you on the spot first? What, what are some of the things that you got out of this last week? Um, okay, so there's there's a few things. I'll I'll start with I think I'll start with Arsenal. Um, obviously, when Arteta came to the club, we all kind of expected that he'd bring the free flowing attacking football that Pep brought to Manchester City and that he's displayed over the years. Um, instead, I think we've seen him solidify the back line and you know their defensive shape and structure. And now he's asking for. Um, He's asking for the club to, you know, give him the money to go out and get what he needs for next season so that they can be more of a threat and, and threaten for, you know, winning a title, whatever the case may be. So I think we've seen Arsenal, they're going to be a, a much stronger defensive unit. And if Arteta can get what he's looking for, um, I think they'll be back to competing for, for the Premier League next next season, at the very least two seasons out. So um, I, think it's really, I think it was really good, particularly this week, to see how they performed against the top two teams. Secondly, I, I think they, they confirmed this week that there will be five subs again next season, which I think is going to be a big thing in football because, for example, when Man U played Norwich in uh, the FA Cup, I heard a, a, a number that it was like some $320 million that they brought off the bench or something like that. So for the bigger clubs being allowed to bring five players off the bench, I think that's really going to help them more than it'll 
it'll help them and it'll hurt the smaller teams because obviously they don't have as much firepower to bring off of the bench in the, in, in these sort of games. So it'll be really interesting to see how that plays out. Super. Um, Danielle, Dre, sorry, Dre, did I hear that right? Uh, Arteta's going to ask for a, a bigger budget to win the league. Did I hear it right next season? You absolutely heard that correctly, okay. Danny. Come on, just, just making sure. Yeah, for sure. Write it down. Remember I said it. <laughs> well, we know they're contenders. Can they turn into winners? Uh, it seems like they can beat anybody on any given day. Um, Danielle, what's your take? So one of the things that I learned is that by watching Liverpool is that it's so hard to keep the motivation high when you really don't have a goal anymore. Yes, they could have still broken that record of 100 points if they had beaten Arsenal, but you know they've won the league. They're a little relaxed now, and it's hard to trick your brain uh, into you know building up the same energy and the same enthusiasm that you had before. And that's why, as well, when it comes down to um, Arsha was talking about the West Ham Villa game in the last match day. If West Ham are safe. I do not see them really uh, putting up uh, a great performance in that game just because uh, it's just because they're human beings, right? Their motivation is just going to go down. We are safe. We did what we had to do. And we're going to approach this game in a much more calm way because we feel like we have fulfilled what we had to fulfill. Harshel, what, what, what did you learn this week? Yeah, um, just adding on to what Danielle said, it's, I think that's spot on in terms of motivation because... As he said, you know, you'd, you'd think that Liverpool would want to go out and get those records, but they won the league with, like, with the large, like, I think they had, what, seven or eight games left. That's the longest, that's the earliest anybody's ever won the league. But they were out of the FA Cup, they were out of the Champions League, so they, they didn't really have anything else to play for. And it comes down, I mean, I think Daniele and Jay will, will know more about this, but the way I see it, it comes down to those split seconds where you might not make that run that you would have otherwise, or you might not go in for that tackle or... It's just that extra bit that you don't put in. And at that level, at the Premier League, that, that's what made the difference for Liverpool. And I don't think it'll make too much of a difference in terms of how this team are um, thought of because they've been one of the best teams in the league we've had. But yeah, I think they might just regret the fact that they've not got those records. But from a tactical point of view, if I were to look at the last week, and um, I was really impressed with Arsenal. Uh, they've, they've obviously beaten two of the best teams in, I, I think, in Europe, not just England. So... Uh, all credit to Arteta and the way he set them up. Um, I think from a squad building point of view, we can see now why Matteo Guendouzi has sort of been sidelined. Obviously, there has been off-field stuff that's come on and Arteta clearly, I mean, there's been some sort of disciplinary issue there as well. But I'm really liking the pivot that Arsenal are playing at the moment with Xhaka and Chevaios because both of them can sort of can receive the ball under pressure. They turn, they can get away from the pressing play and uh, pass the ball out either to the flanks or to the guy who's in space ahead of them. So, I think a priority for Arsenal will be to try and get Ceballos in on a permanent deal. Um, I think Lacazette's done really well because he's also being used off the ball to press the opposition midfielder, the defensive midfielder. But when Arsenal do have the ball, he's dropping in, linking up play and then passing it out to Obama Yang who's making those runs in from the left. Uh, Kieran Peony's done really well. I'm really impressed with him because um, He's a left-back, but he's playing left-centre-half as if he's played there all his life. So, I mean, this week I've been really impressed with Arsenal. And uh, they, they really look like they have a plan going forward. And as Jay said, if, if they can get some funds in and if they can get the players that Arteta wants, next season could be really interesting. 
So I think my, my take for the week is, is that, um, as I mentioned earlier, soccer and life aren't fair, right? And, and in any, any given day, um, something can happen. Um, now, good things can happen, right? You can get the ball um, just outside of the box and have a, a green light special or bad things can happen. And, and if, you, if, if you were to say that Arsenal were to play against a Liverpool and a Man City, and Man City and Arsenal would have close to 50 shots versus Arsenal's less than 10. <laughs> and somehow Arsenal wins, right? I mean, that just shows you how messy and noisy the game of soccer is. And as much as I, I, I want to believe the narrative and fate and maybe Liverpool stepping off the pedal, you know, I, I don't like the term, but regression to the mean – I just think that Man City and, and Liverpool have just been playing so above themselves that, you know, at some point they got to lose. And it just so happens to be in this simulation that we're living in right now versus the other 100,000 that are going on consecutively. Um, Liverpool and Man City happen to lose this week against Arsenal. So I just think that that's why we have to put our boots on and get out on the field because you don't know which version of that 100,000 games is going to end up happening. I will tell you there is one certainty, though, and we'll probably get into this in future podcasts, is that guess what? The four teams that have a payroll of over a quarter billion dollars are going to finish in the top four, right? We had a little bit of drama with little old Sheffield with a $14 million payroll. We had a little bit of drama with the Wolves with a puny little $36 million payroll, right? And even Leicester which is pretty big. They only have 80 million, uh, I'm sorry, 80, 80 million pound payrolls, I, I meant to say. So they are going up against the man use of the world, which have 365 uh, million pound payrolls. So they're almost 10 times more than the Wolves, right? They're almost 20 times more than Sheffield. And guess what? The top four are in the top four because money helps a lot in soccer. Doesn't guarantee, but it helps. It, it greatly improves those probabilities. So um, those are the things that are that are uh, that um, I ended up uh, being left uh, this week. Anybody have any any thoughts or or comments to that? A couple of things, Chris. Um, you're right on that. I mean, I think there's a study that's been done, or uh, it's there's a book basically, Soconomics, if some if you guys have read it, which basically says that the highest correlation between the number of points in the league and uh, is with your wage budget. The higher your wage budget, the higher the chances of you making as many points as you can in the league. So that's basically what it is, you know, the more, because obviously the more you pay out, the higher quality players you can get in. But another thing which I want, which I forgot to mention was the fact that we also saw Leeds United confirm um, promotion from the championship to the Premier League next season. And I, for one, am really excited to see them. Not, I mean, as a Manchester United fan, I do have a certain dislike for Leeds, but Marcelo Bielsa is just, I mean, it, it's going to be a hell of a ride. If he, He's still yet to sign a contract for next season. His contract actually runs out in a week or so, I think. He's still yet to sign a contract for next season. But if um, I think he will, most probably. And if he does, we, and we get to see Marcelo Bielsa in the Premier League, that's going to be a hell of a ride. Leeds have been one of the best teams to watch, I think, in England over the last two, three years, ever since he's been at the helm. And, uh, I mean, Pep Guardiola, Mauricio Pochettino, all these guys sort of love him and are his disciples. So, it's going to be a lot of fun. I'm really looking forward to seeing Leeds next season. 
Harshal, I, I, uh, I so look forward to it as well. I mean, Pep doesn't fly to another continent just to have a meeting with just any coach. And that happened in 2006 with Bielsa. The only trick is uh, guess what Leeds payroll is. I'm sure it's the highest in the championship. It is. It's 16 million pounds, right? So they're going to go up against Man U, which is 365. So I look, I hope Bielsa's got a lot, multiples of coaching talent because they're going to need it. Um, to, I mean, that, if they are another Sheffield, that would be an absolute dream uh, season for, for Leeds, in my opinion. So, um, so yes. Uh, so, gentlemen, thank you so much for that. Uh, we would like to thank Total Football Analysis. They are the world's largest open source soccer analyst community. Please visit www.totalfootballanalysis.com. For now, bella ciao, bella ciao. Ciao, ciao.